Hello, this is Sharon Khan. I'm a serial entrepreneur, CEO of Pepperlane, mother of two daughters, and the host of Step Out of Line. I started this podcast for one simple reason. I'm curious about what made people take turns in their life, when and why they took risks, what inspired them to step out of line and write their own stories, even though the outcome was not clear. I'm looking to interview people that have the courage not to follow a straight line and to follow their own truth. Step Out of Line was born after I listened to Alex Burstein that shared this powerful story during her Amy's acceptance speech. Listen to it. My grandmother turned to a guard. She was in line to be shot into a pit, and she said, what happens if I step out of line? And he said, I don't have the heart to shoot you, but somebody will. And she stepped out of line. And for that, I am here. And for that, my children are here. So step out of line, ladies. Step out of line. For me, there is this deep belief that every kid can do something amazing. It's just you need to kind of really understand them well, and you need to provide the environment that would allow them to be successful. Saida Rida is on a mission to reinvent education for kids around the world. He is the founder and chief excitement officer of Nuvo Studio, an innovation school based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Arida founded the school in 2010 with PhDs and graduates from MIT University. Since its inception, Nuvo has been providing an innovation-focused experience for students and has reached over 3,000 kids worldwide. Dr. Arida and his team have created and energized a generation of entrepreneurs, designers, makers, and inventors in the U.S., Europe, Middle East, and Asia. Said, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is big, you know. I was looking forward to have you as my guest. I'm thrilled because I think the time we're going to spend together today will be pretty incredible for people to hear your story. So I want to start from the beginning before we jump to the present. Can you share with us where did you grow up and what was it like to grow up in your family? What was the religious background and is this really impact your life? So these are two big questions I know. So I grew up in a town called Rohaiba in Syria. The annoying part about it is that when I moved to Damascus, which is only 40 miles away, nobody knew the name of that village. So it was always like, why did I come from a village that nobody knows, even in, in the city that is closest to it? It was a small town. At the time when I was growing up, it had probably 10,000 people. I am the fourth out of seven siblings. So it's a large family with my uncles and cousins and all of that. We lived in the same kind of big house. My parents probably thought it's just easy to have a lot of kids because you have a kid and then, you know, the whole extended family would raise the kids. So this is how they, I guess they ended up with seven. So I stayed there until I was in the 10th grade. And during the 10th grade, I would come back home kind of crying every day that this place is too small at this point. And at some point, my second oldest brother, he kind of realized that it's time to move to the big city. The way it has been happening before is that we will finish high school in the village and then we will go to Damascus to do college. But for me, the timeline was a little bit accelerated because I just could not really deal with how small the town was. We were basically 20 kids in the 10th grade. So I backed up my stuff and left for the city. 
imagine moving from a town that has you know 10,000 to a, a city that has 5 million and I decided to go to a really interesting school that has 1500 mm-hmm. uh, students and it was divided into classes based on your grades so the first class has the smartest kids and you know on some level it felt kind of amazing to be surrounded by all these smart kids but for someone who was just in a class of 20 to a class that has basically all the smart kids in the big city so I kept crying at the time and then my mom was like so do you want to go back to the village and that kind of seemed not an option at the time so I had to kind of make it work and so that was kind of the big first transition. And what about the religious background? Is that something that really influenced you at all? Yeah, I mean, so we grew up in a traditionally Muslim background. Mm-hmm. And then it was nice that it was, you know, moderate. My parents were you know, traditionally religious. And I remember this happened with all of the siblings because we were not satisfied with that answer that you can be just traditionally something. And, and so all of us had their kind of share of experimentation was something that seemed at the time kind of a more rigorous form of Islam. And all of us at some point revolted against it because for me it felt it's the same thing as why I left the town because it was too small. And for me the same thing that religion, what I thought to be the rigorous kind of more intellectual piece of that religion seemed too constraining. So from high school in Damascus, what happens next? So my oldest three brothers are doctors. We had this because Syria was under the French mandate from the government that everybody who graduates high school needs to go to college. There has to be a place in college for them. So they created the system where if you are, you know, 95% and above, Mm -hmm. you go to a medical school. Then if you are a little bit under that, you go to dentistry. If you are a little bit under, you go to kind of engineering. And it's like the whole system is hierarchical like that. So when the students finish high school... It's never a question about what you actually want to do. It's like, where do you fit within that grade system? And then you basically submit your paperwork and then you go to that system. It's a really kind of crazy system. They say, if you are 60% and above, you can apply to architecture school Mm -hmm. because architecture school is really almost in the middle. And then after they figure out all of that, medical school can only have 600. Then they take the first 600 and then they go down, like engineering can only have this and this. So at the end of the day, basically to get into architecture would be raised a little bit from 60 potentially to 63%. And that's how people make it to college. So my brothers are doctors. So it's not like I wanted to be a doctor, but I needed to have the grade that would allow me to be a doctor like them. So that was the competition that was happening between the siblings. So I managed to get those grades. And that was actually another kind of big decision that I had to make. Because if you are at the upper tier, you can go down. But if you are down, you cannot go up. At the time, I was the artist in the family. I was the one who really knew how to draw a little bit. And then we were talking with some people. And it's like, oh, maybe he should do civil engineering. I had no idea what engineering is, like whatever it is, or architecture at the time. So it's like, okay, I'm going to do engineering maybe. And then my dad had a friend who was actually an architect. And it's like, he told us at the time, you know that, you know, there's architecture and it's very different from civil engineering. And because you can draw and all of that, then maybe that is the way to do it. So you went with the flow. Until the last moment, because you do this, there is crash course that they have you do in the architecture school, because even to get admitted, this is actually the only school that also requires a drawing test, which Mm. is not exactly a 
the right thing to do if you want to be an architect. I mean, it's nice to be able to draw, but not an indication that you're going to become a good architect or not. But that's how they did it. And because I used to draw a lot, for me, that was be easy. So I kept delaying that decision until basically the day of the exam. I put architecture to be my first option and medicine to be the second. And I left it there until the day of the exam and I ended up going to the exam. So that was, so that's how it ended up studying architecture. And, and I remember on that first day, we were all kind of, 400 kids in the auditorium, the first year students. And I remember one of the senior faculty was looking at that list. And literally, he said, who is that stupid person who could have gone to a medical school, but is here? And I was like, okay, that's me. Wow. Like from day one is like, everybody is looking at me as like this crazy person doing architecture. went ahead. From you finished that, how did you land in the U.S.? Why the U.S.? It's where I was curious about your background. Is yeah. There was not enough hope in uh, So we have not or? had anybody in the U.S. from my family. So it was not this established kind of thing okay. where we go. But it will take us like a full day or even more to talk about Syria. But a lot of young people who finish college in Syria, a lot of them leave. And I would say probably 80% of them go to the Gulf. Mm -hmm. So either Qatar or Dubai or Abu Dhabi and stuff, because these are where the opportunities are. Some of them stay, but ultimately everybody leaves. So you knew I you're not going to have an opportunity in Syria. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's that was obvious also to you. another dimension of the military service, like which is two and a half years. It's mandatory, unless you basically... Leave before. Leave before and you go study somewhere. You start working in the Gulf. So so you wanted to get out of Syria? Yeah, that was a goal. Okay. So, so I, and I wanted to make sure that before I study architecture and get myself into that, in a route that is not very established, that I would be able to kind of okay. leave and come to the U.S. So you come to the U.S. and you land in one of the top universities. Accidentally. Accidentally. Yeah. MIT is accidentally. So what happened is that one of the people that, I was working with uh, in his office. He knew a professor at MIT, Nasser Rabat. Mm -hmm. He's a really good friend now. And at the time, I don't know, I think he was always interested in bringing some people from Syria to the program that he has at MIT, but there was never really any students who he would think that will succeed or do well. He saw something at the time that I could actually do okay. I applied again to the Fulbright and... I actually got both with that program that Nasser runs was the only place that I applied to. And then I applied to the Fulbright. And at the mm -hmm. time, I got both of them. And then it was a choice, basically, whether I wait a year and take the Fulbright and then I can choose somewhere else to go or I just come to MIT. I'm curious, like getting to MIT, yeah. you got to the top of the top. Did you really understand the magnitude Absolutely of... Not. I wish I did at the time. Yeah. It felt to you just as a natural... Yeah, it's like, uh, why people are doing these crazy things? You know, like, I'm sure that it's not going to lead to success. This is what I thought at the time. Like, people were doing all these, like... Did you not did process. not feel that you just earned the lottery ticket to become be part of the club? Yes, I earned the lottery ticket. But, like, once you get there, then what? And like, then what happened? You started to work hard? Yeah, I mean, that's part... I think, like, that first summer for me, that was, like, really influential. Because that is the first time when I started feeling... Yeah, I cannot read, you know, a book a week for a class, you know, because right. I'm not used to that. I cannot write a paper for that class every week. So that was for me, it's like, yeah, I cannot function in this environment. But then the summer comes and because you don't have these academic constraints, you can just like work as hard as you want and do stuff. And I got lucky when I started working. You probably know them, Oren. 
So Aaron was working on this project. He wanted someone to design some the toys for him. So I started working with him, and that was actually pretty cool. When was that? What year? 2003. So that's okay. right the summer. Yeah, and then I started like, oh, I can actually be successful, right? Like, yeah, I cannot do all these academic stuff. You know, I'm still a designer. I, this is what I studied, you know, and if I can work hard, I can make something. Then we did this architecture competition with this mathematician, Eric Demain, mm-hmm. who was at the time the youngest kind of math professor at MIT at 18. So he was younger than us. And I got to work really closely with him. And also there was another architect who was really well known and I started also helping him with stuff. Suddenly it's like, oh, the summer is really exciting. And that confidence kind of really helped. So you build the confidence over time. Right. So you landed on the PhD program. What did you do your PhD at? The program is design and computation. And a lot of people in the group create basically computational tools to help designers do their job better or they come up with new ways of envisioning architecture or designing new materials or stuff. All right. So at that time, you're really consistent. You're still not stepping out of line in terms of where you start in in Damascus. You're still going with the architecture. With the architecture, yeah. Moving from architecture, I want to get into Nuvo School. How did you come up with the idea? How did you shift into education? Yeah, so this is probably, this is going to be a long one because this is like really the, the outcome of spending eight years at MIT. Yeah. So it was not necessarily just connected to what I'm studying. You know, it was more about the MIT world in general. And, you know, once I was there for probably three years, so this is into my second year at MIT, you know, you run out of things to do in the same department. So you mm-hmm. start, you know, wandering around and, you know, I've taken so many classes outside. And at some point I started having a lot of doubts about how the business model of architecture really works, Mm -hmm. especially in this country. But it's like nearly impossible to start your own office and become entrepreneurial. A lot of my friends at the time, they will finish and they go and work in an office. And you are always waiting for the rich person to come or a museum or a university to give you uh, something to do. And I wanted to make my own kind of business. I did not want to just wait for it to happen. But obviously at the time, I had no idea what to do. So a bunch of things that I stumbled on is the MIT graduate ring. You know, this is the ring that people have when they graduate. There was an announcement to join the committee and I was like, oh, maybe I can do something in there. So I joined that committee. And what happens in that committee is like you introduce very minor designs mm-hmm. to their existing ring. So you have the Bieber, which is the MIT slogan you add some pizza to it because graduate students are very hungry and like all and I was like that did not make any sense to me so I started coming up with this like puzzle like ring that was kind of fairly complicated to a point where I had no idea how to solve the puzzle that I created so I created a competition at MIT for a thousand dollars and I put it all over the campus and the winner basically if anybody managed to solve it they will get a thousand dollars and probably you know the person who sold it is David, David Wang. We ended up spending probably another year trying to solve that together. So that was really the, the beginning of it, at least the relationship with David. And then also at some point, Sopa became involved. And so that's... So you're talking about started. your co-founders. You found yeah, your co-founders before you had the yeah, idea? Long, like a long time before. So that one, a piece, you know, that was really key in terms of meeting these people. The other piece was my PhD research itself, because... I was not interested in these computational tools. I became more interested in something that my advisor has worked on. 
at the time a lot, which is kind of explaining the creative process that architects go to. For me, because I wanted to take this outside of the architecture world, it became, you know, the creative process in general and what that means. I was ready to kind of drop it out as soon as I can create a business that does something. So I was not necessarily that committed to it. In this all kind of chaotic environment that I was living in at the time, I used to live in actually the building next where Nuvo is. It was an MIT housing and there was a coffee shop called Mariposa that's still there. And I would go and have a bagel every morning. Because I was there every day, I became friends with the person behind the counter. We kept talking about random ideas that I... I kept actually a journal of all these ideas that I have, probably like 50 of them at the time. And I will talk to certain people about some of these ideas. So with him, I shared with him this idea that I had for a robotic mascot for the Red Sox. So the funny thing is that this person at the coffee shop happened to be a tennis coach for one of the big entrepreneurs in the city. And he shared that idea with him, although I told him not to share it with anyone. But that person got really excited about it. And he had access to John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox. You know, as I'm like doing, trying to figure out what to do. And it's like, oh, do you want to go meet John Henry and pitch your idea to him? And I was like, yeah. David at the time and the other person who does this robotic infrastructure, kind of we all kind of went to their office at Fenway uh, and we kind of pitched the idea to them. The response was not as exciting as I thought it would be because I started realizing that like within sports team, it's a lot more complicated to actually do something that might tip the balance towards a team because this mascot was also supposed to be like an advanced pitching machine. So it's a mascot that will train also all the pitchers and will do all these things. And it's like, oh, you need to go and meet the league in New York to see if this is be something that could tip the balance. And it's like, really, I'm going to go to New York and go meet with the digital office. So we went and met with them. And that was really like a really interesting conversation with them. But this is when things started kind of slowing down and it was bureaucracy and all of that. At that time, that same entrepreneur who introduced me to John Henry told me that he has a son that goes to this other school. And because he knew that I do my research on education, is like, oh, maybe you should go and meet with him. That is when I basically took also another team with me and went and met with the school at Beaver Country Day School. And And that's how the Nouveau... The initial seed of Nouveau. Tell us, what is the Nouveau School? How is it different from the traditional public school and even private schools? So parts of it was related to that PhD research what that was doing around the architecture studio model and how that studio environment can be an effective way to teach creative thinking to anybody, not just to young people. The other part of it is that this entrepreneur, he had a son who wanted to be homeschooled basically every Wednesday. He would bring him to campus and me and David will start taking him to all these labs at MIT and we will start doing stuff there, you know, like could be nanotechnology, could be AI, could be rockets, could be whatever. And, you know, so these kind of two ideas between the pedagogy itself and the resources, I kind of wanted to create an experience that would expose all kids to these things within the framework of the studio environment. That's how the initial idea happened. I had no idea, can I even start a school? If you had to describe Nuvo in one sentence, what would that be? So just for the audience to get a sense of what is the school is all about today? People keep asking me that question, and it's a really hard question to answer because it changes every day. But ultimately, we are creating a place where first the kids are happy, exploring their interests. 
Second, we are creating an environment for them that would allow them to create something amazing, you know, and feel kind of the impact of their ideas. You know, they are not just like passive receptors of what people try to do in traditional schools. They are in charge of the world and around them and they can have an impact. Uh, you know, I can see it with the seniors that we have. When they have that creative confidence, the kids are amazing and they can do all sorts of stuff. So so for me, that was really the drive behind starting it, is that how do we create an environment that would allow us to have us graduate kids who feel like that they can have yeah. uh, an impact but on the But to me, it sounds from the, from the story and the background that you gave us is that you took what you learned in one of the top schools in America, yeah. MIT, and I think the interesting part of Nuvo is, can you take all of that and expose kids in an early right. age? Is that what yeah, is this right. about? Can they really deal and get access to what we keep away from them until they get to college, if they're going to get yeah. to the top school? We don't know. Here is an opportunity to really encourage kids to solve real problems, but also give them the tools and the mm-hmm. knowledge, right? And believe that they can be change makers. I mean, is that absolutely. what Nuvo is trying to do? Is it- yeah, I mean, our traditional model has always been is like, oh, you need all this basic knowledge before we can trust you can solve anything. Right? Mm-hmm. Like this is what the high school, everybody does the same curriculum. You are taking the same subjects. You go to college and you are still doing the same subjects. And, you know, if you go to grad school, maybe you have a little bit of an agency in terms of dictating what your research is going to be. But you only really get a chance to do what you want to do, like when you go to the workforce. And maybe at that time, even you don't have a chance to really have your own ideas. But for us, that was really key from the beginning is that we want to create that environment where the kids can explore with their ideas, that can experiment with their ideas, where they can feel that their ideas is really what almost the medium that we work with. It's like, can I get these ideas out of my head? And basically, the first thing, can I explain them in a way and visualize them in a way that other people would understand. And can I build a team around it? And can I get my ad- instructors to be excited about it? And so you do that. And then like, how can I iterate on this idea and get it to the next level? And somehow, for whatever reason, in our system, everybody assumes that the kids should know how to do that. But it's an absolutely kind of different skill that nobody teaches you how to do. Like you can have all the basic knowledge in the world. That does not mean you can really take a problem and solve it. Yeah. And what I'm so impressed by the school is that you are able to attract top institutions to collaborate with the kids, right? So you have collaborations with top hospitals that are challenging the kids to resolve real problems. You have mayors of cities. Give us at least four examples of what the kids are dealing when they come into Nuvo in the morning. Just the audience understand why this is so different. Probably the first thing we started doing that was probably a year after we started. We started working on a project with Sesame Street in India to create some educational games for the kids who live in the slums. You know, we started just working on the project, not knowing exactly where it's going to go. And our students really managed to do something like really extraordinary at the time that we ended up flying the kids into India for a week or two to meet with these kids in the slums and to start you know, working on the second iteration of the game. So so that was like, for us, really eye-opening that it's not we planned to send the kids there. It's just we did that because we felt right. that they produced something that was really worth sharing with the world. Right. And then you did a project with M- MGH, you know, the hospital. What did you guys do there? That the kids developed some... Uh... The prosthetics? Yeah. I mean, so it was not necessarily through the 
MGH, although we worked with some labs there, I think yeah. it was at some point we started realizing that also we need to build empathy with the kids. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our work started focusing on disability. And that actually started because we had a student from Cambridge who started attending Newview who uses a wheelchair. And that kind of really shifted our thinking a lot in terms of, you know, what we can do for him to help him make his life better. So at the time, we designed probably five, six studios. And one of the projects that came up from all of that kind of creative exploration is this the hand drive. It's like a 3D printed device that you attach to a wheelchair. Right. The student himself also designed this modular system that would allow you to attach different things to, to the wheelchair. And those kids ended up being invited to the White House to meet with Obama and to explain the project to him. And we continued that work on disability for uh, for a while. The other one was basically working with an organization in, in Mexico that works with kids who are severely autistic. The same thing happened where our students designed really extraordinary solutions for them and they ended up going to Mexico too and right. and doing another prototype and testing it on the kids and all of that. If I would say what Nuvu is, is that we really try hard to create these experiences for the kids that would allow them to feel kind of the power of their ideas. And in real time, real yeah. problems, right? You're dealing yeah. also with clean energy. You also collaborate with refugee camps. Yeah. You really expose the kids to what I would say, um, how can they become the architect of change, yeah, right? right? The innovators. I think what makes it so unique is that you don't look down yeah. to them. You're looking in their eyes and say, how can you help? That's very powerful. With the students, you mean? With the students, yeah. yeah. Full disclosure, I'm a parent of the school, so I get to see the transformation that the kids go through. But a day in Anuvu doesn't look like the next day, right? I mean, you run it by studios, right. but they run into problems, right? Talk to me a little bit about failure. What does failure mean to you in, in school? Because they're not going to solve the problem in day one. They have to experience that as soon as they get to school. I mean, it's interesting because every time people talk about the creative process in general, they always bring the whole notion of failure as a positive thing, which is great. You know, but for us, it does not really work that way because whatever you produce is always a step along the way. We tell the kids at the end too, like whatever we produce, like we think it's good, but like nobody has the answer. Like, right? like everything that we do is there is no right and wrong. It's like we can have a panel of judges and half of them can tell you what you made is amazing and half of them can tell you what you did is crap. So there is not this one single kind of point where you can reference always to say that I did really well or I did bad. So for us, this is why the whole failure, you know, it's not productive because Ultimately, what we want the kids to do is not to say like, okay, I failed and I moved on. It's not like I did this iteration, I learned from it and I move on. And there is nothing in it that is failure or success. It does not work that way. Yeah. So it's just a step of the way. I want to talk about why I think you are really going against the wind. To me, you're we absolutely are, yeah. step out of line. And I'll say a little bit more about it. It's a little bit exhausting, but yeah. First of all, you're not teaching to the test. I mean, Nuvu does not have tests. Nuvu does not follow the but tradition yeah, of curriculum. Why do we need tests? To rank the kids, but why do we need to rank people by their ability to do tests? It absolutely does not make any sense. Right. When I'm looking on the Nuvu school, I mean, you are exposing them to real problems. You teach them how to 
become innovators, creators, entrepreneurs. But what you don't do, you don't follow the system. In other words, they don't take in the traditional classes. I mean, how do you know, say, that you're actually asking education to change the rules? You are breaking the rules. Yeah. Do you view yourself as a rule breaker? Yeah, I mean, so this is when I said exhausting. When you go against the system, right? initially, I think our response was, like, we're going against the system. We don't care about the system. And mm -hmm. that's it. But then at some point, our kids need to go back to the system, especially if they want to go back to college. Do they have to go back to the system? For a lot of parents, it's a big kind of leap to tell them, like, uh, your kid does not have to go to college. Right. Like, so we kind of felt the pressure to kind of connect back with the system, but connect with it on our own terms. Right. I'm going to challenge you a little bit because you are also a creature of the system. You're coming in from the top 1% yeah. in the U.S. universities. You've been right. very lucky. Yeah. And you're giving so much more to kids. But the question is, how do you balance between where you came from, a kid from nowhere from Syria, climbing the mountain and finishing top of the class, PhD from MIT, get access to the best people in the world. How do you tell parents this is not the right way? Don't follow traditional education. How does this work? To this day, still, I think if I had a different kind of learning path, like, I don't know, maybe I would have done something even more impactful than what I'm doing. It's like, it's hard to go back exactly. But what's clear to me, the educational system that I went through was not really the right one, including MIT. Even at MIT, it was only towards the end where you can take a class that is not graded. All of us, like when we were at the class, they are worried what my grade would be. Rather than worrying about like, what am I actually learning? Am I actually getting five out of five or is my GPA is four out of five? Just the notion that you can have that discussion with your friends is kind of insane to me. It's not a predictor of success whatsoever. So why at the time was even a thing to ask? A lot of things need to change. A lot of things. And what I'm amazed is that you created a school, uh, you stepped out of line completely, and now the Nuvu method becomes a role model or a method that other schools around the world now are starting to follow. Can you talk about the uh, Nuvu X? Yeah, so this is the business side of it. Actually, if we're talking about this is the beast that I miss, is that initially actually was not supposed to be meant to be for high schoolers. I actually wanted to create a whole new university in Syria. I managed to actually get like almost 30 professors at MIT and Harvard involved in that towards the end of my PhD. And that was really exciting to kind of think about what that could look like, a new a new whole kind of university based on a, on a studio model. I owed it to that system to kind of do something different. But as we got closer to making that happen, this is when I start realizing is like, uh, I think I left Syria because the system does not allow stuff like this to happen. And so I quickly realized that if I left here and went and tried to start something there and I could not do it, then I'm stuck there again, you know, and that was not what I wanted to do in the beginning. So fast forward to this school idea where, you know, we have this idea with Beaver where the kids can leave the school and come to us for a semester and we go through this almost boot camp like and they go back to the school. You know, I think that is where naiveness kind of comes into play because I did not do my high school here. It's like, oh, I can go to any school and convince them this is the thing to do. Right? Right. I was just like, it's a no brainer. It's just like it should happen. And four years after the fact, we still had only Beaver. 
And that was really frustrating to kind of try to change the system and you cannot really break through whatsoever. We've had conversations with, you know, hundreds of people and we could not really break through the system. Just to clarify, the idea was is to convince private or even public schools to send schools to the Nuvia studio to really experience a very different type of learning and then send them back to the... So they can change the school from within. Got it. So that was the vision. The vision was big. You said, I'm going to build a school and I'm going to show everyone else how to do that. Numbers wise, I thought, you know, and we have something like this in every city and every year we are going through like 200 kids, you know, and then all these kids go back and like that will build a lot of momentum. The thing that I did not realize is that Beaver at the time was the real anomaly that there is not a school like it at all. You know, when I was doing that, trying to do that Red Sox thing, you know, that was going a little bit on the slower side. And then I started doing the school and things started moving really fast. And I somehow got this illusion that it will be so much easier to do stuff in education than sports entertainment. A year after, this is another rude awakening where, no, it's not the case. It's actually a lot harder to change the system. You're very modest. I'm going to jump to the milestones. How many schools today? So, yeah, once we realize after five years that we cannot take the students out of the school to come to a center in the middle that becomes a magnet innovation center, we basically started talking with schools about setting what we have inside the school. And that proved to be a lot easier for the schools because they don't have to worry about the kids missing this class or missing that class, you know, then basically depends on how the school is structured. We can try to figure out some space in the schedule that would allow us to have the kids even as there as a class or a school within a school. So we started really tailoring all of these solutions based on the school. So we started with a school in Florida called All Saints Academy four years ago, and now we have 15 of them. Around the world. Around the world. That follow the Nuvu method. Yeah. And they build the Nuvu lab inside their schools. Exactly. And you're sending the people to and teach them how to do labs, that. Yeah. And we run those and labs, yeah. And you run those And then we work, collaborate with teachers. Yeah. And, and yeah. the hope, yeah, is that, you know, that becomes a seed of change within the school. And the exciting part about this is that we don't just work with private schools. You know, we work with charter and public schools. We also, the one in Turkey, for instance, is actually set up in a refugee camp, you know, which is really exciting. So, do you realize how big is that? I mean, it's I mean, not big enough, but yeah. Well, we we always suffer from that as entrepreneurs. Our vision is unbelievable, but in terms of how you change the landscape of education, and can I mention that you're not a credit? I don't know if you even want to go there, but on top yeah. of that, some of your seniors made it to the top one percent yeah. universities, including Ivy Leagues. Yeah, because ultimately. You know, the goal is to convince schools, you know, that your kids are amazing. And so we started really figuring out some interesting ways to do that. And once you do that, then actually the story becomes a lot easier. You don't have to worry about accreditation. You don't worry about the classes that they took or did not take. It's like almost a job interview. And if you can prove that this kid is amazing, then that's it. But I I think it's more than just how creative the curriculum that you put in place. I think it's also how you look on humans in general. I mean, for me, there is this deep belief that every kid should be successful. You know, although growing up, I was always the first in my class. So I should be the one who's like really excited about ranking people. And But I think I learned enough to realize that like it's so destructive to kind of create that 
ranking system. It's not really helpful for anyone. Maybe at some point you do a project that is really good, but like good for whom? Because your professor thought it was good, but for other people, it did not really make any sense, you know? So the initial idea of Nuvo came to be, that was actually kind of almost really key moment for me is that, you know, we were struggling with a lot of the grading, the evaluation, what do we do with the students? And we had this meeting with the staff and we said, you know, because these kids are really, like, especially the kids who are coming for three months, it's hard for them to adjust to like this idea that there is no ranking and there is no grade and stuff. So let's try to do something. So we went through the list and it's like, oh, this kid is a C or a D, you know, like, and we finished the meeting. I am walking outside. This kid comes to me that mm-hmm. partic- I don't know how the coincidence happened. And he started telling me how much he got out of this experience. And that is when I realized, like, who am I to kind of judge this kid and tell him, no, whatever you learned out of this is worthless and you are actually a D. All of these kids get whatever they want to get out of. You know, so for me, there is this deep belief that every kid can do something amazing. It's just you need to kind of really understand them well and you need to provide the environment that would allow them to be successful. And I probably, you know that, like, you know, ultimately that's our goal with every kid. How do we get them to be creative, confident people who are happy in this world and feel like that they can have an agency and impact. So I'm going to just change gears here. And I want to ask you one thing is, you know, you came to this country. Did you accomplish the American dream? Do you believe in this dream? I mean, I'm having a midlife crisis now, so I don't know (laughs) if I can really. It's a perfect time to ask this question. I mean, it's interesting because I look at a lot of my friends who even finished college with me and all of that. You know, some of them find happiness in all their kids that they had along the years. Mm-hmm. Everybody finds happiness in something. Initially, for me, it's like, it was the singular thing that, you know, you have to be the best architect in the world or you have to be the best person or in this or that. Probably with age, at some, I'm realizing that, you know, everybody takes their own path. Everybody tries to create their own happiness and... You know, obviously, I'm at a point here, if I can talk about myself, you know, I have a newborn, I'm happily married for a few years. And, you know, I have the job that I love, all of that. You know, so if that is the American dream, then yes. Yes. So I'm curious if you and I, you know, we are now entering a new decade. I want to just ask you, what do you think the landscape of traditional education is going to look in the 10 years? And and are you going to be part of it? I mean, probably it's going to look the same, unfortunately. Really? Yeah. I mean, we're going to obviously keep pushing and prioritizing students, you know, at the forefront and not worry about all these stupid systems that we've built over the whole kind of hundred years. But the system is so entrenched, you know, even if you want to apply for a grant somewhere, right? Like everybody wants to measure something. And the minute you start adding numbers and measurements and rankings and all of that, we get to the same exact problem that we are trying to escape from. You know, so I don't know what it's going to take to basically have a fundamental change in the system. Maybe we will produce enough kids that will I mean, you disrupt Nuvu. the system. Yeah, Nuvu, Nuvu, will, Nuvu, yeah. The or the schools that we work with. Hopefully they can at right. some point. This is for me, this is why the scale issue is irrelevant here, because ultimately there is a tipping point. You know, when you have a lot of these people out in the wild, then they can tip the balance right. somewhere. Right. Like yeah. so. The obsession now is to figure out what that number is, how many of these kids we need to have to kind of tip the balance. And disrupt the system. Disrupt the system. I love that. You're doing it big. So if you and I will sit together, I'm sure we'll have a chance to do it again five years, 10 years from now. Where are you going to be? 
This is something that I talk with my wife about all the yeah. time. Are you going to keep pushing this or are you going to move to another big problem? You know, we have tons of problems. Education is just one. I mean, where do you... It's maybe the biggest. It's the biggest. I think if we solve that, then all the other problems become minor. But give th- me your vision for the next 10 years for you and for Nuvu. What should it look like? I mean, on one hand, we are still trying to make what we do better. Like, how do we make the experience that the kids are having with us better? So that, I think, never stops. We never say that we've done it, we know how to do it, and that's it. To maintain a creative energy in the space that we have and the spaces that we have around the world, it takes a lot of kind of work to kind of maintain that. And that's like a big focus for us. How do we maintain that and cultivate that? But the hope is that, you know, we keep expanding the X network, as we call it. You know, one of the exciting things that we did this year is that we brought all the heads of school from all over the world to come to the summit and share these experiences. And that created a lot of momentum. We are doing now a student summit where the students are coming also from all these schools that we work with. And they're going to be together, I think, 60 of them. And so in five, 10 years, I'm imagining that we have 5,000 kids coming from all over the Amazing. world. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, so what that other thing that we do... Now is that, you know, initially we had all kind of a little bit of kind of logistical problem of sending kids to another country to introduce the world to them and try to solve problems outside of your own kind of confined uh, space. And now it's a lot easier because we work with schools all over. So three of our seniors now are going to Hawaii actually on Sunday to work with the students there. So it's becoming a lot easier once we have that network. Yeah. I have one more question for you. We usually ask our guests to share their favorite song at the moment. This is because, you know, I think that music can bring all of us together and also give us insight to learn more about our guests. So do you mind uh, sharing with us the song and then tell us a little bit about it? I don't really listen to a lot of songs, so this it's not like this is going to be something that is I've thought about for too long. But the song that I'm going to talk about is relevant now because as my wife was pregnant, mm-hmm. almost somehow after the first week, we decided that we're going to have a girl. Oh, you knew? We basically signed the thing that we don't want to know the gender. Yeah, but you guessed? No, just we wanted the newborn to be a girl. And we were, I think, up until like seven months, you know, we were pretty confident that it must be a girl. It's like, there is no way it's not. Into the eighth month, and it's like, oh my God, what if we had all these names for the girl? We had no names for the boy. It's like, we cannot even find names. We cannot even process. And then we got so confused. Like, do we need to come up with names for the boy or something? And I think I remember at some point we listened to that song that Dalida sings and it's called Selma Ya Salama. That's the name. She's going to be a girl and Selma is going to be the name. Here we go. We got actually got a girl and her name is Selma. Beautiful name. I wanted to thank you for coming and share your story. I think that you are such a role model, not only for the kids that see and follow you. You know you're a rock star at school, I can tell you that. But also because I think your vision is so uplifting and big. I think the only way to change education, if you have a big vision, a universal vision, and I think what you're already proving that this is universal, that there's an opportunity to disrupt education, yeah. 
because who knows what mm-hmm. success is going to look like. So thank you for all the hard work you're doing. Thank and you. thank you for joining me today. Yeah, I think with that piece, probably it's like, I don't ultimately want to be the only person who have that vision right. to change it, right? Like the goal is to have millions of people who have the same vision. That's the only way that we can really change the system. So so hopefully this will be a lot more distributed and not just about one person or a few. It will be about millions. Thank you. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun, I say.